This is a Federal News Network podcast. For more than a decade, agencies have heard from both industry and federal experts that one of the best things about commercial cloud services is that you can pay by the drink. Like electricity, you only pay for what you consume. More than a decade after the first cloud-first policy, though, that consumption model is still difficult for most agencies to actually achieve. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller has exclusive details about why buying cloud services off the GSA schedule will finally meet that long-held goal of paying for what you use. Jason has the details with me now. Jason, what has changed? Tom, I think there's a combination of things that have changed. Number one, uh, the pandemic, right? We always have to go back to the pandemic. That has shown agencies have moved much more to the cloud. They're realizing how cloud services work. I think there's a more comfortableness with the cloud. I think agencies generally say, okay, I understand how this works now. I understand how I'm buying it. I understand how agents, how vendors are selling it. So I think it's a whole mind shift that we've seen over the last decade. And unfortunately, it's taken that long for, for agencies really to, to be that comfortable with how they're using it. The, the challenge, of course, is how you buy it. And, and that hasn't changed uh, until now. What is GSA changing then? They've been working on this for several years, and they released a second draft policy. And in fact, Tom, I heard about this at the recent Coalition for Government Procurement Conference conference where Nick West, who is the deputy director in the Office of Policy Integrity and Workforce, spoke about this upcoming policy change. We hope that this the policy lays out a clear way to execute the pay-by-the-drink acquisition strategy using the schedules. We started this a while ago, about a year ago. You may have commented on a previous version of this policy. Don't worry, we took into account your, your comments about the pandemic. Uh, kind of changed everything in terms of our priorities. Uh, so we picked it back up recently. We incorporated all those comments. I think we set it back out fairly recently, a couple of weeks ago to the coalition and a bunch of other industry uh, folks asking for comments. And we hope to have some sort of schedule uh, language in the in the schedule contracts by the fall of this year, maybe earlier, hopefully. But we really look for to build something that the CIOs can use and that you all will offer solutions for them to use. So what Nick West was saying there was now that we have this draft policy out, now that we're starting to see some 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 understanding of how cloud is bought, we can then offer it through the GSA schedule for what this means. Now, Tom, of course, as a good reporter, I had to go out and get a copy of that draft policy, which I did. And we have a copy of it on federalnewsnetwork.com for anyone to see. This is something that hopefully will be signed off by Jeff Kosas, GSA senior procurement executive. And, and basically what it's doing is saying, here's how you would buy a cloud buy the drink as much as as close as possible. It's not going to be 100%, but as close as possible under the GSA schedules contract. Certain changes like, Tom, no more price reduction clause when he talks about cloud buying. This is really important because what the price reduction clause requires is the vendors give the lowest price possible to the agency. But if you're buying by the drink, you're consuming it, then you can't say, well, today's price is X and tomorrow's price is X minus one. It's kind of like electricity, right? It always is kind of moving and you're buying it based on other factors. Second thing they're doing is well. And I think this is really important, Tom. They think it's going to open up the market a little bit. If you can buy certain amounts of cloud services, hey, I want to buy 10 gigabytes of cloud services for for the next month, the new entrants can come in and take part in this market. So I I think they're hoping that this will open it up. And then obviously there's some cybersecurity challenges and addressing through the way you buy a cloud. If there's a problem, you can get out very quickly. You can turn it off. You don't. You're not stuck there where you're like, well, that network hasn't been patched in in six months, and now we're getting attacked by the Russians or somebody. Right? You can say, well, we're out. Move over to a more secure one based on our research 
or if someone in industry has a new widget in cybersecurity that, that, that they want to take advantage of, you can quickly move to that. So the flexibility, the agility, and of course, the cybersecurity, and then all it all comes back down to cost. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. And just to be clear, this is a draft policy that can be turned into policy. It's not rulemaking. Correct. This is just for GSA schedules. This is not government-wide. This is just going to change what they call the GSAR, which is the GSA's acquisition regulations, and it only will apply to the schedules contract as well. So it's not going to apply to GWACs, for instance, sure. or other multiple word contracts. And what have you heard from industry about this draft policy? Industry, generally speaking, is excited. This is something that the GSA has been working on for the better part of two and a half years, so I think they're ready for it. I did hear from one industry source who requested anonymity because it's still a draft policy, and they said this is really important because of federal IT modernization and service delivery efforts, but I think the biggest challenge they see is the scope and the focus takes a very government-centric view. And unfortunately, that is not a good viewpoint from an industry perspective. They should take what the industry best practice is or what the viewpoint is. So that is being used across the cloud industry, not just the government perspective. And I think part of the, the challenge around that is well, you want us to provide commercial pricing, you want to adopt commercial services, but the prices have to be transparent. There's a kind of a push and pull. There's also a government a cap, right? So if an agency is buying cloud services and, and their cap, and this is the part where I think this gets frustrating for industry, if the cap is, let's say, Tom, make up a number $5 million, if they're going to reach that cap within 30 days, the industry person has to tell their government client that, hey, you're about to reach a cap. In our world, Tom, you know, you and I, when we buy electricity, Pepco or, or Dominion Power or wherever you're at doesn't call us to say, hey, Jason, you've been using a lot of electricity. You're going to reach your cap. And I think that's the frustration of this approach. You're not quite 100 percent pay by the drink, but you are inching closer. All right. And if GSA is able to pull this off, Jason, do you think it could spread beyond GSA at some point to government-wide cloud policy? Absolutely. I think there is an absolute thirst for this type of policy. And this is not the first time governments tried this. In 2016, they actually began work, the Federal Acquisition Regulations Council began work on a new policy for the FAR. That never went anywhere. And in their agency working group tried a best practices guide for buying cloud services that promoted this pay by the drink. And Tom, just for a little bit of context, agencies spent almost $7 billion on cloud services in 2020 alone. That's according to Bloomberg government. Only about $400 million of that came through the schedules. About 7% of all spending on the IT schedule itself was only cloud. And the IT schedule did something like 15, 16, 17 billion dollars worth of sales. So I think there's a lot of room. There's a lot of thirst to buy cloud services. And, they want, and if and GSA can make it easy, I think other agencies, and again, whether it's other multiple award contracts like NIH or NASA Soup or some of the big IDIQ type contracts, I think they will follow suit once they see GSA take take the leap. And I think that's going to be very key yep. for other agencies. It strikes me that this could be popular with the original use of cloud, which is a credit card, open account, do some software development, put that software into the open source, and then maybe close it down, as opposed to hosting enterprise applications for the next 10 years. I think there's room for both. And I think one of the things you're seeing from agencies is a better understanding of what it means to develop an app or develop a system and put it in the cloud, and does it make sense to leave it there, or does it make sense to keep that app in my data center, depending on costs? I think there's a whole conversation we have time and again, especially with vendors and agencies, about data costs. What's my what's the cost to get my data into the cloud and get it out of the cloud? And if that cost is going to be too much, I better keep it on premise. And I think, Tom, that's part of the reason why we hear so many agencies and CIOs talk about staying in this hybrid world. Some stuff in the data center on-prem, some stuff in the cloud. But I think when you talk about shifts in, in the workload, 
like the IRS during tax season, they know they're going to have to turn up their cloud services because there's going to be a lot of refund. A lot of refunds are going out and a lot of tax information is coming in. Or maybe the Social Security Administration needs to send out checks once a month, but they know they're going to need a lot of cloud services during that period, but then they can turn it back down. I think that's where this pay-by-the-drink approach really would be helpful. All right. So basically then, though, if, as you say, government is thirsty for pay-by-the-drink, they're going to get it now. Maybe that's my headline, Tom. All right. Government is thirsty for pay-by-the-drink. <laughs> Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure. Check out his story with whatever headlines on there now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. 
And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. 
And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. Not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet, or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.